Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness, is what I would say if I were Eric Davis and this were his amazing podcast, which I have been listening to for many, many years since before podcasting was a phenomenon like it is today. And in that regard, (laughs) Eric is as I find to be the rule rather than the exception, way ahead of the curve. Eric Davis has got to be one of the more interesting people I know, and I know a lot of very interesting people. He wrote the fantastic book, Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, when he was in his 20s, an intellectual feat for which I will be envious for as long as I am identified with the conditioned pattern of neural activity that calls itself Michael, which luckily is itself not a linear thing. And I'm not constantly envious of Eric because I am more and more these days entertaining the liminal unknowing that Eric has made such a proud case for in his work. And beyond his masterful way with language, beyond the sweeping synthetic understanding and penetrating insights. I am grateful for Eric's work in my life because of the way that he has modeled for me and many other people this mature skeptic, this canny, critical, thoughtful, but still playful, engaged, curious, genuinely open, genuinely in a state of becoming kind of person. And it's this kind of person that we agree in the conversation you're about to hear is encouraged by the accelerating environment in which we find ourselves that as the pace of our lives increases, as we are encountered on a daily basis by more and more unfamiliar novel things, as the literacy is required to navigate these complexifying spaces proliferate, and even as hyper-specialized individuals working in unprecedentedly intelligent and capable groups, we will have lost the plot. It's easy to imagine a world in which your average person's much, much more like Eric Davis than they are today. And for me, I'm glad to think of a world such as this awaiting us, a world of good-natured, humorous detectives, rigorous yet flexible cyber psychonauts, limber and evolving minds. But before we get into that, I just want to thank everybody who has been supporting this show on Patreon, including the newest patron, Catherine Carr. You all are helping me make a very, very challenging transition from my old life as an independent artist to my new life as an independent artist and a whole lot of other things. The father of a child and living across the country from where I do now. You know, I've I've just taken this new job at the Santa Fe Institute and being a part of an institution is a very strange and different experience for me. And this podcast is kind of helping me keep myself sane so I don't feel like my entire life is changing all at once. Uh, You are the thread of continuity. 
So thank you. And because of this, thank you. I'm going to be posting a whole lot of stuff in Patreon this month, including new coloring book pages and special patrons only episodes, plural, and some other things. If you would like in on those things, if you want the backstage pass to my creative evolution, then sign up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. All of those mediated interactions that we can have when you review the show or whatever, those are great and they help other people find this conversation. But there is something so much more delicious and juicy and alive between me and the 120-some folks that are supporting the show on Patreon right now. It's really cool. At any rate, thank you all for listening. And episode 99, I love Eric Davis, and I'm so glad I get to share this with you. Enjoy. Eric, it's been a long time, and I think I'm especially excited because I was on your podcast before I even realized I wanted to start my own, and so the entire time I've had Future Fossils, I've been looking to return the favor. And yeah, though, I'm really happy to be here and have a conversation. Yeah, it's wonderful. great. So, first of all, you just finished a book. I did. Yeah, I finished my book, uh, High Weirdness. It's going to be out in the spring through MIT Press and a Strange Tractor. And I'm very psyched about it. It's, it's, it's got a great cover. I'm, I'm really happy. <laughs> That's, um, it, it does have a great cover. I was really, I was really impressed by that painting, yeah. uh, which yeah. is like a, a UFO mushroom, if well, I recall. Well, kind of yeah, a- well, what, what it was is that, you know, so the, the book is about the weirdness of the 70s, but it's mostly focused on three characters, on Terrence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, and Philip, Philip K. Dick. And what I'm doing is I'm I'm looking at their most extreme experiences and just trying to read them, trying to understand them from a kind of theoretical point of view, uh, but also telling the story and, and all the cultural elements that are going on in the historical context of them. So, I, But I had this problem where I, I don't have their names in the title. It's called High Weirdness, Drugs, Visions, and Esoterica in the 70s. And I didn't want to have them on the cover, like their faces right. or their names. But I was like, and so I woke up in the middle, then I was I was in a in state of kind of, it was more like insomnia. I often wake up in the middle of the night. It's often not insomniac anymore. It's just like a space of, of reflection. And I, I kind of like, sometimes I get up and meditate in the middle of the night and go back to sleep and have wonderful dreams. Uh, <laughs> But I, this was a little more worry, worrying, and I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to deal with the film? And then I was sitting there, and I just kind of in that dreamy space, and then I realized that there were symbols associated with, with each person, and that they could all be combined in a very beautiful way. So, the, 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 for the people who know, they'll recognize what all these things mean, that the eye in the triangle is, is – uh, uh, you know, like an Illuminati, Robert Anton Wilson thing. But the eye is actually an eye from, this is the most subtle thing, is from a, a Philip, Philip K. Dick's drawings of these eyes. He was really into the, the, the Vesica Pisces, right? So that, that's, it's his eye. And then you've got the, mushroom, the, the, the UFO mushrooms, the, the Terrence kind of 
surrounding it like the way that the naga surrounds the buddha and it's it, it all came like boom, boom 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 in my in my visual imagination and then i knew this wonderful artist eric roper who does uh, a lot of heavy metal album covers he did sleep dope smoker i mean he's a he's a classic guy who's very uh, influenced by 70s style so i just and i know him and i was like dude can you whip this up and he's like yeah great so he did the cover and it's just it's just awesome <laughs> that is you know it's something that i think came out of listening to you and lawrence caruana on your show uh for me was this articulation that visionary art is in the same way that that the renaissance artists learned this you know two and three point perspective and learned to train uh lines converging on the horizon visionary art may be best defined as the attempt to train symbols from different cultures towards a, a transcendent yeah. horizon of human experience and so your i think your your book uh the cover art bodes well for you know as a performance of that understanding exactly exactly so and and i also like i've always enjoyed the the esoteric wink like one of the things i've always tried to do in my writing is to to put little easter eggs that people who are in the know get an extra you know fun from but if you don't know it still works because it's still this is weird like if you don't know what those mean you still see this weird thing and you're like you know there's something powerful and strange you know robert venosa said something about that same effect in an interview he did with reality sandwich years and years ago where he said he felt that that there was something subversive about the art because it would affect you even if you didn't understand it like that yeah. you know he could reach the most sort of conservative person and get in there and affect something in them plant a seed yeah well in many ways that's that's the the basic motivation of the book is is uh to enact that subversion or even kind of an infection of the weird uh through a kind of theoretical apparatus where if you are if you're invested in those in those kinds of discourses you can't help but encounter certain conundrums you know and it's like it's like okay now you got it like what are you going to do with it you know it's it's there's not an answer and it's you got to kind of deal with it because it's more it's you can't just write it off as as kookiness i mean it's kooky but it's more than kooky and and so now here it is like Let's do. What are we going to do with it? You know, like that—that's it. It's, so it's a—it's a very uh, resonant kind of a, a approach to these things. So you know, in a, this program, at least pretends to be about time and history and and finding our place in the great cycles. Uh, so I'm curious, what have you decided after all of the thought work of writing this book compelled you? To decide that this particular story is so resonant and and relevant and important yeah. for this moment, why why now? Well, it, you know, so that's sort of like a his, historical question, and then for me, it's it's really about the '70s and kind of feeling that in some ways we haven't really reckoned with that moment, especially in terms of the counterculture. When we think about the counterculture, we usually think about the 60s. And and we don't quite follow it into the, the darker, weirder, much more re relevant period of the 70s. Because the 70s is kind of the time that our time begins. Uh, 
And you can, if you look at the history, if you look at what happens with capitalism, with the growth of consumer credit, with the uh, immer- uh, sort of influence of surveillance and paranoia is a very important part of the 70s. Uh, uh, and, and also, you know, it's the era when we first have terrorism as a kind of performance, you know, with all the, the plane hijackings and there's a, there's kind of a density and sort of historical dread that happens, particularly in the early seventies. That's sort of the historical background of these experiences, which in some ways aren't directly political, but they're taking place in this new, you can call it postmodern, if you want, environment that really begins in the 70s with diversity and the multiplicity of perspectives and the way in which the new age and the occult revival, which are, are really emerging full force in the 70s, kind of shape the new subjectivity that's associated with that particular historical time. So I'm really interested, you know, I'm a very historical thinker. Like when I approach some, even like an abstract philosophy or a a, a unique, brilliant aesthetic experience or expression to kind of understand the historical context. And that's the zone. It's interesting that you, uh, well, first of all, that you call it the zone, because I know our friends over at Weird Studies have done quite a bit to uh, pick apart the zone as, as a space of weirdness and the suspension of, of the normal. And so have you, you know, in your writings on festival culture as a liminal space, etc. And, you know, your, your wife Jennifer's uh, treatment of the liminal states of consciousness in, you know, heading into and out of sleep. And, um, but there's this interesting connection that you just drew between the emergence of like of terrorism and the you know global neoliberal capitalism and the the rearing of the head of of the weird i'm reading this book uh which is i think also out on mit press uh the age of discovery was like they talk about these these major historical shifts as being a folding of the margins of the map into the center of the map that like in the in the emergence of you know global shipping and that kind of international commerce that it was you know the 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 map centered on the fertile crescent and then suddenly london and and amsterdam which were over in the corners are the center of the new map and I, there's something about high weirdness poking out now it it's sort of a a reassertion of the marginalia as the actual dominant cultural significant yeah. thing. And I'm curious to hear you speak on on why you think that is and and uh, where it's taking us, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the way I, one of the ways I, I, I didn't, the book is, is fairly long and I didn't really have as much room as I thought I would to draw a lot of explicit connections to our current moment. But certainly if you look at things, just the, the way that the the occult conspiracy theory, uh, the sort of uh, dark dreamlike character of a lot of genre uh, material is all much more present now. It's much more central. So like the, 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 the way that conspiracy theory has now become 
weaponized and uh, a sort of form of, of uh, you know, live story coherence that itself is kind of deeply fictional and that way that like fictions become operational as quasi-truths as a way to organize this sort of social and media chaos that we're involved in. Um, you know, that's, I think that's no accident. You know, it's, I don't think there's an, it's, I don't think it's an accident that the, you know, the occult is back in, in fashion and in art theory, uh, that, uh, conspiracy theory is such a, a central kind of part of our attempt to understand how people are constructing consensus reality. Um, the, the popularity of psychedelics and the kind of psychedelic renaissance. I think all of those things can be seen as almost um, an unconscious recognition that the sorts of mind states that are able to navigate, understand, resonate with, and to some extent, not resist, but understand like where you you actually are kind of in that zone consciously, that those skills are absolutely necessary in this point of kind of consensus reality meltdown, uh, and they that they might not in the end help, uh, but they seem to at least allow for a certain kind of navigational ability. And then, in my opinion, along it, when it's still coupled with a certain kind of critical awareness that's centered in history and the you know actual historical conditions that we're in, so I you know in a way I feel like I'm kind of helping to allow that space to open up more. So, are, what would you point to as key literacies in the weird future that we're you know strolling into here? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a part of it is 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 the way that that fictions become, if you know, operationalized, where, where fictions become a, alive enough that you have to deal with them in a different context. I mean, I'm thinking here of a, a somewhat trivial example, but but one that I think resonated with a lot of people was like uh, the the Slender Man meme. <laughs> so you get Slender Man as a kind of you know, goofy meme that emerges in this collective uh, rhizomatic network space that's designed to be creepy, to kind of intrude on your liminal consciousness as a kind of play. Uh, And then it it becomes this sort of uh, tulpa, it becomes this kind of thought form that then has a sort of quasi-reality such that some crazy young person can sort of embody it or work within a framework where that's a a reality that motivates them. And since it's a good example because it's, it's on the fringe enough and the fact that there's really only, you know, all we, all we know about is this one event where, you know, these young girls sort of take it on as a reality, but, but we're able to see a kind of logic that's much more widespread and much more center central. So such that, I mean, just to be topical for a moment, there's no way that anything like these pipe bombs uh, can cannot be seen as a, a false flag. So there, there, in a sense, we've gotten to a place where there's no information, let's say, that, that seems to sh- shed negative light on right-wing America. There's no event that can happen in the, in the news space that will not instantly be reframed as a, a hoax, 
So we've, we're in this place where reality and the hoaxing are, are in, 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 inextricable. How do, you mo- how do you move through that? I don't know. But it helps to understand how fictions can become reality, that there are, are there's sort of an ontological density to these collective stories and collective images that you kind of have to take seriously the way that if you're a psychedelic traveler, you have to have ways of dealing with the entities or beings or um, weird, uh, even paranoid visions that can happen in the, in the space of a psychedelic experience. It's not that those things are real with a capital R, but you have to deal with them. You have to engage them. You have to know how to respond. And that kind of sensibility, I think, is actually a a good way to go into a future when fictions, stories, fantasies, propaganda are more and more lively because of the media condition that we're in. Mm. You know, I was uh, another episode of your show. I forget this, the guy's name. It was an HP Lovecraft scholar. And the two of you were talking about, you know, Lovecraft would have qualified as a, as a genuine visionary, you know, that he was having these visions, that they were appearing to him spontaneously in the same way that they did to, you know, HR Giger or whatever, but that he assumed this distance from them you know that this this atheistic sort of disregard uh and you know it, it appears in his stories that his characters are uh you know that the reader sort of remains and the author sort of remains at a distance from the horror in in some way yes you know and and then you know the, I, I like to try and trace the historical arc through Robert Anson Wilson and, yeah. and Phil Dick as as people who were preoccupied with their own participation in that weirdness. And, yeah. you know, and so that it's like, it seems like there is a, you know, a staggering oh, I, I, involvement, I, yeah. you know, a deepening that, acceptance of the weird participation mystique. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think weird and participa- participation mystique is a good way of, of looking at it. I mean, I do... Well, one of the threads in the book is about Lovecraft in the way that e- the, each of the different figures all had a relationship with him in, in important ways, and and were playing with that sense of of, of fictions that can uh, and disturbance that that that, that introduces. And it seems like if you were to trace that even further, that you know we, it's a it's a turn and face the strange kind of moment here where. We would sort of get over that anxious preoccupation with it that they had in the 70s, and it just becomes sort of mundane. Uh-huh. Like the tables completely flip in some yeah, way. Yeah, it's true. No, I mean, that, that's that's part of the feature of the popularity of, I think, of both the occult and psychedelics and all is that there's a, a way in which as they fold into the cent more into the center they become banal and that part of our historical fate if you will is to be in a situation when you know all the nightmares came today 
but they're sort of, it's sort of like woven into this peculiar banality that is a real feature of neoliberal capital and the state of media where everything becomes kind of routinized and referenced and clipped and quoted and smashed and ironized and all of those processes are happening at the same time uh sometimes it seems to me that 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 banal is actually a real interesting kind of magic because it it sort of allows you to navigate without the full uh disturbance hitting home and yet we're actually dealing with those things so it's kind of like we're in a i mean you can also talk about it in terms of the the monsters that technology produces you know whether they're you know and we're just the, at the beginning of the kind of you know dna monsters and i mean monster in the sense of something that's that's disturbing because it is new it's novel it's a confuse it's a juxtaposition of categories that are used to be separated and, and so it doesn't necessarily mean a negative thing when I say it, but it's just that we have to, yeah, turn and face the strange, that that, that kind of strangeness is, is, is going to multiply. But part of the ways that, that it's integrated is to make it kind of banal. So if you look at the rapid acceptance, for, uh, in, at least in you know some zones of the culture, of people who are trans, and it's like when we first encounter that idea, most individuals, whatever they meet people or they they discover it when they're young or whatever it is, at least historically, I don't know if this is true anymore for people who are living who are young now, but like it's like whoa, that's kind of weird, that's kind of different, that's like a a twist on these settled categories. But in order to really embrace and accept and play with the consequences of that kind of gender fluidity, you have to sort of accept it's just normal, just part of everyday life. I was like, oh, yeah, they're trans, whatever. Cool. You know, and that's really healthy. You know, so there's a way in which we were, we're called upon to analyze our resistances to, you know, a whole variety of shifts, mutations, couplings. And that if in, unless we want to go reactionary and hold on to certain ideas we have about how humans should be or how the world should be, uh, that we're we're in a situation of of a strange kind of em- embrace with the with the other. So do you do you suppose that this kind of boundary confusion is on just this constant? ratchet into you know deeper and deeper Mm. boundary confusion or do you see this as a sort of uh musical chairs in between the ages like an interregnum oh that's a yeah that's like i don't know i don't know the answer to that sometimes i feel like and i still haven't figured out exactly the best way to explain this feeling but that one of the capacities of human beings like human beings are, are these strange animals because they're they're open they're open to novelty, and once they get novelty going in some kind of social context, then the sort of the rule set changes to a certain degree, not entirely. But so there's there's this open process. But along with that plunge into novelty, we also carry with us a kind of banality, a kind of like everydayness, a kind of like ordinary sort of anxious, sort of irritated, sort of desiring, sort of frustrated, kind of very human environment, and that we bring that with us. So sometimes I think that if if somebody from the 19th century was sort of, you know, 1850, let's say, was translated to our zone to, or, you know, appeared in this, 
we would look much more weird than we feel. We'd look like we were deeply embedded in some very strange technological mutation that's like crazy and not normal and really, but for us, yes, we can notice that everybody has these devices, the sense of time and space is changing, the the boundaries between physical reality and virtual reality are, you know, opening up and becoming porous. But there's also a sense like we just have our days, it's kind of ordinary, it's kind of lame. And so part of me thinks that even as things get really weird on one level, you know, until there's a massive shift, if such a thing happens, or a massive collapse, that will maintain a certain sense of like the ordinary, which in a way is a gift to be able to still have that kind of connection. Um and uh, so I, it's, I'm not sure about how that balance is going to, you know, sometimes it feels like we're just a few ticks away from almost a kind of mass psychosis. And at the same time, it's sort of business as usual on this really weird level. And I don't know whether we kind of carry that with us as human beings. And so as long as the humans around, there's always this space where it's just kind of goofy humans trying to make do and and whatever in the midst of all of these transformations that reminds me of there's a scene about halfway through charles strauss's novel accelerando where the characters that we've been following have been translated into data and have been uploaded into a computer the size of a grain of rice and are inhabiting a virtual reality as they fly to the 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 nearest star in a spacecraft the size of a, a soda can and they're having a debate inside this simulation about whether or not the sim- the singularity has happened yet or not you know and they're they're all like in their they're like renaissance fair mods you know one of them's dressed up as a velociraptor and they're all sitting there like yeah the singularity now that's that's just nonsense you know oh it's never gonna happen we're never gonna get there it's it's like a xeno's paradox thing yeah yeah it was no no it totally happened 20 years ago (laughs) well that's the thing is like if if it already you know it's like if the if the you know and to think think mythically if the internet could be a kind of mind could be a kind of intelligence or some sort of networked uh you know uh, even consciousness that could already be the case and we're just not aware of it so it's in a way i do distrust the kind of um tendency towards the the apocalyptic the the singularity the the total breakdown all of those sort of fantasies of of radical change they you know that has happened over and over and over and over again in history that people had that kind of anticipation and when you look in the backwards in the rearview mirror you're like yeah i mean that's a an allegory of, of historical changes that are radical in perspective but the actual threat of human existence within that zone except for crazy prophets is is largely still kind of ordinary so i can totally see something like that where we're we're in that you know we are uploaded and we're playing a game and we're in and it's we could spend the rest of our time there but we still bring along a certain kind of recognizable human, you know, crankiness and love and eros. And it's very, you know, it's very familiar in a way. Uh, and we kind of carry that with us, both like a, it's both like a virus and like a kind of charming, co- you know, continuity 
in in human behavior and human personality. I mean, that's kind of my gut feeling on it. I, I could be wrong, but you know, even though we're we're in a very postmodern environment, to use a kind of outdated term now, you know, there still is a lot that's uh, recognizably human. Hmm. You know, it's it's funny because. I think you and I would agree on it, the weird. The weird is almost like a horizon of human experience, and it moves with us as as our coordinates shift. Absolutely, then it, it sort of <laughs> keeps a, a continuous sort of you know st- stable distance, and that it marks almost more just like a perimeter between the the known and the unknown. And in that way, the weird is frankly kind of like a friend. It's not something that ever truly just devours us or yeah 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 it's something it's something to kind of lean into and then, and then also talk about you know climate change and all that you know there's there's you know, other people uh have referred to you know global global warming as as global weirding and i remember very distinctly when my father's an, an oceanographer and and uh in, increasingly oceanography is a kind of you know climate science and he was talking about, well, you know, the thing about warming is that it's not, it doesn't get, just get warm. This is, you know, years and, you know, what, 15 years ago. It's that when things become warmer, it's not just that they heat up, it's they become more turbulent. And then when you start to follow what turbulence is, then you begin to get a better sense of like the fluctuations and the unexpected uh, positive feedback loops. And it, it's all much more strange than just getting hotter or just getting wetter or just getting having rising sea levels. It's that it's suddenly we're in a zone where the weather itself is weird. It's no longer normal. Like I don't, I'm not familiar now with this pattern that's happening where I actually live. And so one of the ways that that horizon of weirdness appears in our life now is in this very basic sense of the weather and the weather being, you know, not just an object out there, but a space that we're always within. I mean, where there's always, no matter where we are in our lives, no matter what we're doing, no matter we're doing something on the computer, we're doing something in a room somewhere in a city, we're, we're out hiking, we're, we're growing food, it doesn't matter. We're, the weather is always with you. It's always the ambiance. It's always the sense of the kind of environmental surround, the tonality of our, the spaces that we're in. And that, on a literal, physical planetary level mutant unexpected it's potentially anomalous and and the anomaly is another way of thinking about the weird in a in a more concrete way because the the idea of anomaly you know is important in science it's an important way to mark things that don't fit the paradigm without saying they're supernatural or or mystical or or ha- don't have a cause uh, but it does mark things as being outside of a given paradigm or a given framework of understanding and i feel like our textured experience of the everyday anomaly Ooh, uh, and that's you know yeah i was just no you cut out for a second but i thought i oh, feel okay. like we still caught you there uh but you said you know the textured experience of the everyday has become it, it, it well that we're just in greater proximity to it to anomaly mm. and and that itself creates that sense of weirdness where we're, we're not really entirely sure about the the environment that is around us. There's a kind of uh, something is let loose, something is unknown, something. So we're, we're in some ways, 
more able to commune with the fundamental mystery of things because the texture of every day, the nature of consensus reality as it's mediated through our devices and and the internet uh, is is you know warbling. Mm. Yeah, that you know, there's there's this um, this thing about the anomaly. You know, in talking about the increasing rapidity or frequency of anomalous events, you know, I think about the what is it, Arthur C. Clarke's. I forget first or second law where he says, if an elderly distinguished scientist tells you that something is impossible, he's probably wrong. And that there is, I I feel like a trend into this sort of childlike beginner's mind, you know, the, the, the neuroplasticity required to accommodate and adapt to all of this turbulence is becoming, you know, highly selected for, and that it's warping the the human psychology into this this um you know kind of like juvenile state you know Mm. a a state Mm. like where they talk about you know children have very low signal to noise ratios they're kind of tripping all the time and that's how you're able to learn as as fast as you do as a child but to uh as we're learning to do to reopen the critical learning window to make it possible for the brain to learn as much as a child's brain does, then, you know, there's only so much real estate in there and, and we have to give up some of what we were in order to accommodate the new. And so it's like, it, it feels as though um, in the, the figure ground collapse that you're talking about here where, you know, Tim, Tim Morton has talked about this also, right. About, you know, every sort of local weather event being an indicator of climate, global climate change, you know? And so you, you never really, you can't keep the background out of the foreground. And that when that happens, that it's like a state change in human psychology. And, you know, we, we cease to be these sort of static points or, it becomes, I don't know, maybe moves from like a fluid to a gas or something. Yeah, yeah, there is a kind of gas. And I, I love the, 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 the way that you frame the, the juvenile aspect of things, because it, I think it's really true that if you look at culture, and I, I must kind of say, most of what we're talking about applies to one part of our current social reality, at least here <laughs> in America. And of course, there's an other part of the con- contemporary social reality that's resisting these things, that sees, you know, in some ways, and, and it's, you know, complicated, and we don't have to talk about the right wing and all that kind of shit, because that's a different conversation. But in some ways, uh, you know, reactionary positions or the attractions of fascism, uh, have to do with providing a uh, ground in the midst of the and, and I think it's really important for people who are on the sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of postmodern plastic, post even proto post human kind of approach where we're we recognize these changes are underway. A lot of them are, are going to be very difficult. That we might be able to guide them to some degree, but a lot of what's happening is sort of already written into the story. We're open for it. We, we're hoping that we can keep our values alive as we move into this space. But there's a big chunk of people who are just like, no. And so even as they're participating with equal ferocity in the very environment of this mutation, they're insisting or, or reproducing a fiction or a fantasy or a story or a narrative or a mythology of clear boundaries, of 
No, men and women are defined by their birth gender, by their genitals, or the, the borders between countries and the, the line between illegal people and legal people, and all of the ways that the right fetishizes boundaries, definitions, traditional categories, sources of value from the Bible or, or whatever. And it, it's, that's all complicated by what's happening with capitalism. But in terms of the, the values and the, the reasons that people get so drawn into these stories, part of it has to do is that they provide a sense of a ground or a, 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 a know, knowing who you are uh, in the midst of a situation where many of us who aren't attracted to those stories uh, <laughs> recognize that not knowing who we who we really are is part of the game. And in fact, it's one of the great opportunities of our moment. I mean, even if we are plunging into a dystopia, you know, along the way, you know, here we are. Here's our historical fate. There's a tremendous opportunity to dig down and understand who we are in the very attempt to navigate and not lose yourself and not become so plastic that you're a puppet. You know, what does it mean to be, you know, in, in control? There's Catherine Malibu, who's a, a neuroscientist, but who's very influenced by, or a, you know, a neurolog uh, I'm not exactly sure what her science background is, but she's more or less a, a neuroscientist, but also studied with Derrida and has mm. this kind of theoretical approach. She makes a distinction between plasticity and flexibility. It's a really interesting idea because she says, look, contemporary capitalism, neoliberal capitalism wants plasticity. It wants workers who are able to learn, to constantly change, to be always ready, to be on call, to not have a fixed work day, all of the ways in which, you know, the gig economy and, and the sort of constant novelty of technology demand a kind of flexibility. She makes a distinction between that kind of flexibility, which she sees as problematic, to plasticity. And plasticity, she, she frames it as, yes, it's the ability to change or to modulate in relationship to changing conditions, but we're still in control to some degree. That plasticity is a kind of, there's still an element of like will or shaping or uh, awakeness. It's not a pure flexibility. I don't know if we can maintain this distinction, but it's a really interesting one as we think about it, because I think it's always important to recognize that the kind of shift or psychological mutation that we're talking about is not the same thing exactly, although it's related to the flexibility that neoliberal capitalism demands. Mm, yeah, because, you know, there is this trend in science fiction as a critique of you know various philosophical positions you know and and I, I like you know you can look at Jaron Lanier's critique of cybertotalism, uh, one half a manifesto, or you can look at Charles Strauss again in Glass House where he's talking about how by uploading ourselves and he's not the only one that's done this you know dozens of authors have addressed this but by up uploading ourselves into a digital platform we become more and more transparent to these kinds of what you know what we're calling here capitalist manipulations that you know wars are no longer fought by 
killing people who can constantly respawn from a digital backup they're fought by corrupting the backup and hacking people and and we, we look forward to this age beyond advertisements but we're already living in an age where you know content marketing or whatever the hell you want to call it you know eventually neuromarketing and so on is that you never even see the ad you just want the thing you know mm. and, and like that's not yeah, that is very, very distinct from, you know, the other form of adaptation, you know, which is to <clears throat> retain a sort of, uh, uh, you know, at least some sort of determination over what causal vectors you allow to shape your des- your landscape of desire, if that makes any sense. That like, no, sense of, like I, choosing who has control over you. It, no, I think it's a very it's a very good way of thinking about it, and it, it also demands that we, you know, take on. We recognize that we have uh, sort of how to say this um, within our own processing as psychological, physical beings who can practice who can engage with practices that transform ourselves. The, uh, the German philosopher Sloterdijk talks about this as anthropotechnics. And his basic idea is that what humans are, they're kind of like practicing creatures. They can take on practices that in turn transform the very subjectivity of those who are practicing. And you can see this most obviously in, you know, uh, sports or acrobats or whatever people who like r- rigorously discipline themselves in order to kind of shift the very nature of their or or at least the capacity or shape of their subjectivity. The same thing happens with meditators or you know people who who follow ascetic paths. And he looks at religions. He says religions aren't really. We, we misrecognize religions. We think they're about beliefs. We think they're about symbol systems. But really what they are is kind of a name for the practices that people engage in their self-transformation. And of course, those happen outside of religion as well. So becoming aware of the way in which we're, we're practicing creatures and that by using the phones the way we do or by surfing the internet the way we do or by making decisions about where we buy, all of those things are in a way self-engendering practices. But there's a whole you know, grab bag of practices that exist, you know, not strictly within that environment, things that people have been able to do for a very long time, like meditation. So I, that's that gets back to the point I was saying earlier, where I think that the, the, the mainstream attraction towards meditation, towards psychedelics, towards a certain kind of occult, esoteric, weird, you know, uh, new age kind of thing is all a way to sort of hone in on those practices that in some sense can keep us awake or keep us uh, 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 to some degree in control of our own mutation in relation to things that we, that we can't control at all. Mm. Yeah, that's, you know, I think uh, Richard Doyle talks about this in Darwin's Pharmacy. And I was just also tweeting now for the Santa Fe Institute, uh, you know, having picked up that, that social media gig with them. And one of their professors just published a textbook on an intro to complexity science, where they basically say that the underlying pattern of all of these different complex systems, the general theory of complex systems is in the way that they behave as co-evolving algorithms. And that there's this sense in which by 
sort of <laughs> accepting the embrace of the machine and the cybernetic epistemology of you know Stanford Research Institute and this this you know what uh, you know Yuval Harari calls the new religion of Silicon Valley that the self is just a you know a bunch of programs and can be reprogrammed but that actually has like a very you know estimable history in other way 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 headier and weirder people like john Lilly, and you know you spent a lot of your time talking about that and about sort of the the sort of brighter transcendent opportunities of regarding the self as software <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's a funny one i mean personally i i i feel like i i can do that Maybe it's maybe it's my temperament. Maybe it's my. I, I'm I'm not really sure why, but I feel like that practice for me is also always balanced with a relationship with deep history. I mean, we started out talking about time, talking about the '70s, talking about the currents of where things come from. So even as I try to open to this algorithmic reality, this sort of cybernetic uh, process, uh, positive feedback loops that have you know characterized society in in some extent for a long time but certainly in the post-war era i mean that's sort of how i look at the 20th century is the most important thing that happens in the 20th century is cybernetics both the concept and the operationalism of creating communication feedback loops that begin to generate their own processes and you can look at the financial system that way you can look at modern media that way you look at the way computers work the way algorithms work the way they run off of loops and and recursive functions that there's this kind of thing that's let loose at the end of world war ii when cybernetics kind of hits the stage and we go into the, the 1950s and a lot of that stuff begins to shape the institutions that organize the post-war game uh, which in some sense we're coming to the end of or, or is dissolving or fragmenting or unraveling or intensifying or something like that. Um, <laughs> that, that to the degree that I'm, I'm riding that, which, which also means having a systemic look at the human being of not being romantic about, you know, who we are and da, da, da. But at the same time, I find that I'm, I'm, I'm all in, in ever deeper relationship with, let's say, ancient Greek philosophy or Buddhism or indigenous wisdom and the, the actual anthropology of indigenous societies, not so much the romantic sense that they're at one with nature and all that, which I don't really believe, uh, but the ways in which their life worlds and their practices are incredibly sophisticated and well-tuned to the nature that we are still, to some degree, beholden to. And that's one of the weird things about our moment when we talk. So on the one hand, we have this technological thing. On the other hand, we have this climate change thing. And the climate change thing is always reminding us that we are animals on a planet on this fragile biosphere, which is this like thin film of amazement on a you know, meaningless rock and a meaningless void. And, you know, that's a very weird place to be. So we're kind of like pulled in multiple directions. And so as the farther I go into sort of a, a cybernetic model, I am also aware that, at least for me, it needs to be ground out in a deepening relationship with with animals, with uh, weather, with food, with uh, plants, with plant wisdom, and definitely with those peoples uh, in whatever traces and whatever mutations we can encounter them now, but those groups, those societies that had a very different relationship that's not really mediated by the machine. So to me, that kind of 
tension, which is very much in someone like like Terence McKenna, who's on the one hand a, a futurist and a m- apocalyptic McLuhan, you know, technological thinker, and he always was. At the same time, there's this relationship to to the plants or to uh, you know a very uh, material sense of of being a human being. So for me, it kind of needs to be in 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 balance. I mean, balance. I don't know if there's the right word, but intention. <laughs> Uh, whereas some people seem very comfortable to just fully like let loose, you know, bur- you know, cut the ties, let's accelerationism or let's just plunge on forward. And, you know, I, I understand why some people do that. But when I'm around those people, I often feel a kind of law. Lo- there's a kind of loss there, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and that may again, just be a kind of temperamental or generational, uh, sensibility that, that doesn't really necessarily apply to the, the condition, but I, I, I think it does. And I think that's again, why we see these things folding into the mainstream, however corny, however misunderstood, however problematically appropriated, there's a reason that we're looking at these various, traditional or ancient or liminal consciousness kinds of experiences because they provide a ballast or another framework to uh, understand or navigate this algorithmic in- environment that we're, we're plunging into. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, insofar as this this is a an apocalypse, you know, you would think that an apocalypse as an unveiling would reveal something you didn't already know. And I, I feel like that's sort of one of the weird blind spots that you're talking about in among those uh, who, you know, the accelerationist is a good word for it, you know, because I feel like I'm I'm participating in a quickening. And it's funny, like, what's in a name, you know, and, and how um, looking at the same thing from, like, very similar synonyms reveals such different horizons and, and vistas here. It's like there's something about the quickening and its relationship to you know, the enlivening of something, you know, like mud becoming, you know, like in, in Prometheus, the black goo, it like just turns stuff into life, you know, and that as we reach this, you know, the the belt buckle on the other side of what we thought of as reality, where evolution itself has become a technology. And really, you can point a century back to Thomas Huxley, and he's saying this, he's saying, you know, in the years immediately after the publication of The Origin of Species about the massive shift required of us to take any kind of agency with respect to evolution as a process. You know, like, and when that happens, of course you would expect that suddenly things are going to start talking to you that you didn't, you didn't expect to have a voice. I, I, I feel like, you know, with just any amount of consideration, the, you know, the apocalypse is not just, you know, a like plug me back into the umbilicus you know, serve me entertainment and allow me to be my little pocket demigod. Although obviously that's, there's like more room for that in a weirded future than there is in the present. Also, it would seem as though, you know, you're, you're talking about the cultural retrieval of these things like the acceptance of non-human intelligence and that there is something in the cyberpunk, you know, uh, William Gibson, cyber dolphin thing and there's something in the terence mckenna you know mushroom agency over the human mind thing and there's something in the scientific acknowledgement of the so-called wood wide web you know all of these underground relationships and this and the way that the the forest sort of operates as a single 
what SFI would call a liquid brain, like an mm-hmm. animal, you know, that the liquid brain as, as an entity, as an acknowledged entity is sort of that apocalypse. And so it's not in a way, like, I don't know if I, I see the same tension, you know, between that kind of archaic revival, that kind of re- reclamation of, of these things and, and reevaluation of them. The way that I, what I'm, what's bringing this up for me is, is the way in which animism, whatever we mean exactly by animism, is of central importance to this whole conversation. Because when we think about, as you're saying, is that one of the features of our moment is the recognition that intelligence and agency lies everywhere, and certainly in many realms outside the human. And again, it's a it's an interesting parallel that at the moment when we're really considering on a, on a culture-wide basis artificial intelligence, when people are interacting with algorithmic uh, dolls and uh, strange forms of uh, avatars that are running on AI that we're interacting with, or you know, where we shift to uh, having algorithms be our investment advisors rather than people, that we're not going to be directly interfacing with an algorithm. We're going to be interfacing with some kind of weird avatar that's created somewhere that has a sense of personality and as those personalities get better and better we're in the situation where where whether or not we believe they are actually intelligent or actually entities our practice is that we're going to be interacting with these things in the digital realm and at the same time again i feel like the the return of sort of indigenous models the sense of our understanding of the way in which we are profoundly embedded in all of these non-human relation relationships with non-humans and whether we're talking environmental or you know all of the 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 critters in our gut you know the way that who am i i am a simian uh, spew mixed with this uh, incredible microbiome you know bacterial uh, festival that's like constantly seething and shifting and affecting my moods and get you know like that already is this profound relationship with not just the other but the multiplicity of the other meaning both that the other is not just one entity like talking to a deer spirit but it's like talking to a hive or talking to a huh. swarm and that kind of relationality you need to be developing that in order to understand what's going on even from a like practical kind of normal, you know, like like a, a secular materialist, rational kind of point of view. But spiritually, there's a much deeper sense in that we're, we're called upon to recognize the multiplicity of others. And it, it makes sense that, there, you know, that the rivers have a certain claim, you know, and so you get into that idea like in Bruno Latour where there's th- this kind of vision of a, of a, it's a very hopeful vision of, of a sort of democracy, if you will, of humans and non-humans because the agency is distributed all over the place. So the fact that that's happening kind of both in the environmental consciousness and we're you know the the wood wide web is even just a, a thinkable concept that you read about in the mainstream media that's something that people wrestle with what a weird idea i mean 30 years ago uh-uh that's not happening <laughs> you know so we're multiple dimensions but there's a shared quality to it that 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 makes the that model of the archaic revival still i think really valid at least as an allegory you know, to take it a, a layer deeper, even, it seems as though 
this is almost a kind of a biblical thing, you know, that they talk about in the end times, everybody being brought back and sort of, you know, that, that on judgment day, you've got, you know, everyone, it just sort of comes back up out of the ground and we're all hanging out in simultaneity. And there's something, there's a whiff of that in the Jurassic Park conversation and in like the de-extinction of the passenger pigeon and the Russians want to de-extinct the mammoth, you know, and, and a collapse, uh, you know, and, and a, a historicity sort of mm-hmm. as, as a, uh, the asymptote that we're approaching is, I talk about this all the time. I know that you've brought it up uh, a lot. You, you know, you've talked with Doug Rushkoff about present shock, you know, everything happening at once. And so, I don't know, I, I feel as, I don't want <laughs> I don't want to keep you here all night, but I would love to hear you speak to, you know, what you think is going to happen to our experience of time in this space. So like, what, you know, what do you see happening? And, and is it, does it even make sense to, obviously we're moving into a plurality, you know, a a sort of a greater diversity of temporal experiences, but like (laughs) what trends, if any, and like in what directions? Well, I, that's a good, it's a good question. I don't feel like I have a very coherent uh, answer for it, but I think you're, you know, certainly right to point towards a weird, you know, all, all histories are present kind of mode, which in some sense is already a part of that broader postmodern culture where you can sample and, and bring forward parts of the past, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I remember uh, Kevin Kelly once talking to me about the fact that like, like, if you look at the whole history of like human craft, right? Like from the get go, from the, you know, from the, from the Neolithic or even before from the Paleolithic, all of the things that people have done with objects to make things happen, to, to, to cook, to, uh, you know, produce artifacts, to, you know, manipulate the environment that all of them are currently being done somewhere by some weird freak, wonderful <laughs> experimenter you know like all of the you know all the people who who do primitive practices who, who who go back to you know archaic ways of engaging the world or doing metallurgy or or you know doing food like someone is practicing everything because they're kind of obsessed with that historical resonance so it does sort of feel like as we go forward we're echoing more and more all of these elements from from earlier periods in in history and at the same time i think our consciousness at least i mean i'm not sure i can't generalize but in in you know in my case i'm also more and more drawn to a kind of openness of awareness that has no real object other than its kind of a- ability to settle into to the presence of the moment and it's both deeply time marked and there's a strange kind of timelessness about it too a kind of openness i think that that negative capability that allows us to be in the space of contradictions and to hold them on a kind of meta level that there's a a, a register of that kind of frame or that kind of model it's not quite the right word uh attitude uh, in our sense of time and Again, I kind of think about these things in terms of almost homeopathic doses, like we need we need to take little bits of different kinds of time in order to be able to navigate and not become completely overwhelmed, not to become someone who's driven in a purely reactive way by all of the inputs that are coming in or who are dominated by fear or dominated by particular stories about what's going to happen in a way that creates enemies and all of the things that we're seeing right now you know, another way around.
around that is to become much more familiar on an individual personal level with these different modalities of time that are available, particularly through meditation and, you know, at least in my, my experience. So I, it's not that I think this is going to become uh, something that we see everywhere in the, in the world, but it does feel to me like more and more people are recognizing that that kind of time that is able to just rest in presence without things happening, even though things still happen, something like that, that ability to suspend identification with some agent that's in history or producing something in time, that other modality or overtone becomes a uh, uh, not just a space of you know reconnection or depth or or disconnection from the craziness out there, but it becomes almost a survival tactic, almost a way of reacquainting us with different modalities of our own uh, you know encounter with 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 the world as a way of kind of moving through this very confusing situation, quickening apocalypse, whatever you want to call it, you know, and all those terms do mean do mean different things. But, you know, I, I think it's, uh, here's what I mean. The question of time becomes also a question of our own subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And that uh, we, through anthropotechnics, have some degree, not of control exactly, but of being able to set in motion to plant seeds of processes that will allow subjective or consciousness kinds of events openings, reframings, modalities that give us some of that plasticity rather than the simple flexibility to refer to the earlier part of the conversation that allow us to get our hands on some of that plasticity uh, in a way that, again, keeps us awake. Mm. It's, it reminds me of, again, to resort to a physics metaphor, like the boundary layer, the, the lubrication allows things to flow past without too much friction. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there's some of that. And, you know, that's a, that's a danger, too. You know, it's always, it's, uh, I, I always take uh, uh, Zizek's critique of, of Buddhism and, and meditation to heart. You know, I mean, his basic idea is that Buddhism is the, and by Buddhism, he, he means, he, he doesn't really understand Buddhism very well, but when he says <laughs> Buddhism, he means kind of popular American, you know, sort of superficial, new age, mind meditation, mindfulness, things like that. And, and he says, look, this is the perfect religion of neoliberal capital. Why? Because it allows you to sort of create a, a, a buffer that absorbs or, or enables you to deal with the constant shock of the present tense changes. And so he sees that as a way of kind of numbing in relationship to the conflicts that might otherwise motivate, you know, radical social change or et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Maybe, and I, I, I think it's really important to always keep that in mind um, because that, that's also partly true that that, that uh, process you're talking about where you create a kind of smoothness that enables a little bit less friction to happen also just enables us to whatever, be better workers, be better cogs, you know, to, to design our technologies better that then go out and become parts of a you know, military surveillance apparatus, all the things that people do in Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera, that it doesn't, it's definitely not a panacea. It's definitely not something that intrinsically wakes us up. There always have to have to be values, intentions, and directions that are more than just these techniques of 
buffering or, or creating a kind of sense of space or a sense of openness around our reactivity. You know, but at the same time, I think it's kind of bullshit that 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 it's what it's better to just stay on the level of reactivity or just mm-hmm. better to stay on the level of like tremendous social conflicts or psychological tension that has no other way of working. So I think it is a two edged sword that kind mm. of consciousness work as a way of maintaining or establishing some kind of balance in the midst of the the chaos we're in but i you know i also think it's a a tool a that's not even the right way it's a it's a way of opening up our very capacity to understand those encounters with the other those encounters with the monster or with the mon- multiplicity or with the novelty and and that those are the, that's not just uh, numbing it's also leaning in it's also extending and and having a kind of comfort uh, even as we confront uh, the weird. Mm. Maybe it, the difference is in the attitude of flowing through as opposed to flowing over or, you know, in addition to flowing yeah. over. Anyway, uh, Eric, <laughs> so uh, I love to end these by inviting people to have a conversation with that unborn future audience, which, I, you know, I think if our speculations are close to the mark there are people out there in the the simultaneous future that are reenacting this conversation so what advice would you give them in their- uh, that is a really trippy uh, concept i'm taking i'm wrapping my head around that a little a little bit uh yeah that's a, such a funny one because anything that you you might bring forward uh, is conceivably something that they can already uh, simulate or you know already re- reconstruct. You know, again, again, I just I, I read the classics. You know? It's like <laughs> it's not too late for you know for the for Stoicism, early Buddhism. You know, there's something there's something in some of these basic uh, not basic but just uh, foundational moves of the human mind uh, that continue to. Uh, be worth engaging even in uh, the the simultaneous uh, simulacral future. Mm, that's awesome. Eric, thanks for being on the show. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with shows like The Astral Hustle, Third Eye Drops, etc. Excellent. Go check them out. Next week's episode is 100, and it is with an authentic, real-life superhero, my friend, the Tea Fairy, and it might be the wildest conversation that has ever been on this show. So, thanks for listening. Subscribe if you have not already, and may your now be wide enough to drive a truck through. <laughs>